You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Pick one event or date or meeting that you've been dreading. Something that you're like, Ugh, I don't want to do that. We all have those. And come up with a purpose for it. So why are you doing it? And if you can't have a purpose, say no. Okay. But hopefully there is a purpose, even though you're dreading it. And think about how you can ask the right questions or set yourself up for the success to achieve that purpose and see if it changes the dread and then and the negativity from the interaction. See if you can flip it from dread into at best neutral or at best positive. That was Vanessa Van Edwards, the founder of the Science of People and the best-selling author of Captivate: The Science of Succeeding with People. You might think that someone who writes about success with people is a raging extrovert, but that's far from the truth with Vanessa, who calls herself a recovering awkward person. In this episode, We illuminate how much Vanessa and I actually prepare and stack the deck to be comfortable in social settings, rather than leaving it to chance and charm. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining me today. You know, this has been a long time in the making because we've been talking and having fun and um, working out and all sorts of things for, for many years now. And it just, I was like, why have, why has Vanessa never been on the podcast? Well, it's fixed. Thanks so much for joining me today. Today, I'm so excited. Yeah, we've even weightlifted together. You've seen me weightlift. I know, right? So um, very, very interesting things. So first off, I want to start with a congratulations. Um, I've told you this multiple times, but you're a national bestseller, bestselling author. Um, and I know because of those conversations, how much heart and how much you put in to making that happen. So I wanted to start with that because it's a big achievement and we'll talk a little bit about the ups and downs as we go, but congrats. Thank you. It was, it was the adventure of a lifetime. Let me tell you, the ups and downs of this journey have been crazy and you watched it. So thank you. Thank you. Alrighty. So, you know, as we were talking in the green room before this conversation, Something that came up that that um, I wanted to draw out a little bit more is this idea that you know here you are you've written this best-selling book on winning um, with people basically right and you describe yourself as a socially a recovering socially awkward person and tell us a little bit more about what that means like what were some things what were some behaviors that you used to have that that you said you know what that's what made me a socially awkward person. Just so that we get a context for that, because I, I think it's easy to glance over that. It's like, oh, yeah, this is like, you know, 20 years ago, she was a socially awkward person. And you might be like, no, actually, I'm a socially awkward person now. But tell us the stories and, and just bring us to that space in time. Sure. Yeah, I, I really do think that I'm still in recovery um, in that um, I am. I joke that I'm sort of one comment away from full awkwardness. Mm-hmm. You know, like one, like, so you know who you're talking to someone and someone can say something that throws you. I am that one comment away from flipping into awkwardness. So it's, it's always kind of there. And I don't know for my fellow recovering awkward people. Um, it's sort of this, um, fear that's always kind of on low boil 
a little bit. And I do think that awkwardness comes from fear. When I really dive into my own awkwardness, as well as everyone who these amazing readers who have come out and shared their stories with me, I realize that our fear causes us to either do two things. So either your social fears, you know, your fears about not being accepted, not being liked, people being mean to you, that can either cause you to shut down. And that's a certain kind of awkwardness, right? So there's the awkwardness of being very quiet, very passive, um, not saying what you want, overthinking things, not approaching the person you want to approach. That's a a kind of very quiet, shutting down, um, inhibitive awkwardness. Or there's a, a second kind of way that it can show up, or your fears can cause you to dial up and overcompensate. So this is when your awkwardness makes you interrupt, babble, um, uh, say things you didn't mean, over-exaggerate, um, inter- uh, walk up to people way too brazenly and interrupt their conversations. Um, so I tend to go with the second one. I tend to be a babbler when I'm very nervous, but in very, very bad moments of awkwardness, I will shut down. So if you think about where your fear shows up, I think it's very helpful to know where you, what, which way you go. For me, it's both. <laughs> For you, it's both depending upon the day. And depending exactly. upon the level of um, anxiety present, right? Um, exactly. You know, I was talking to somebody because we're, we're both coming off of WDS, okay? Um, so that's World Domination Summit. That's the um, host that Chris Gillibeau, um hosts here in Portland every summer. And someone was talking to me and they're like, man, it must be nice to be like super extroverted and to be able to walk into the crowd and like, you know, everybody and you're hugging and like, you're just talking fluidly and they're like, it must be nice. And I was like, well, so here's the thing. I'm actually an ambivert, right? I'm, I'm, you know, if you do the one to seven scale, I'm like a, with four in the middle, I'm like a 4.5, right? Not, not full on there. Yeah. And so the reason I was explaining it that way was because I was like, depending upon the circumstance, I can appear really extroverted. I'm walking in home territory here. Like I know a lot of people, right? A lot of people know me. I I don't fear sort of the rejection. And if I'm rejected, I'm like, whatever. There's other people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. In this environment. If I were walking into, you know, the, you know, UN Economic World Forum, right? I would probably much more like a two, right? In the sense, because I don't know anybody. And who who are these people? Do I belong here? Are they going to like me? Like, you know, where's the bathroom? All of those sort of things that that happen, right? And so I'm I'm glad you mentioned that it depends upon the context, because I think people over label their their particular social reactions and their introversion or their extroversion or their ambiversions and don't just really admit that it's contextual based upon the general background anxiety and fears of rejections and so on. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm a human behavior hacker. I call myself that because I do think that situations and conversations can be hacked. Let's talk about WDS as a great example. So I have in a way hacked WDS very purposefully So people who see me now, my fourth year of going, they're like, wow, like she she can walk the floor. She goes on stage. She knows everyone. But actually that was very purposeful. So four years ago, I attended WDS for the first time and I thought, wow, this is an amazing place. Amazing speakers. It was, you know, it's a place for unconventional thinkers, but I was so uncomfortable. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know the lay of the land. I didn't have my recharge spots. So I decided to systematically, step-by-step, hack that conference. So here's the first thing I did. The first thing I did is I decided that I was going to make WDS a science of people team retreat. So 
I took my team members at Science People, we're about five core members, and then we have 112 trainers around the world. I was like, wait a minute, I'm very comfortable with those people. And here's all this great programming on unconventional thinking, which is exactly what Science People is. What if I just turned WDS into our offsite? So I invited the next year as many of our core team members, as many of our, our trainers who could come. And that next year we had six. So already I was going in with a little crew and I made sure that we lined up in time. I made sure that we had t-shirts that matched so I could see them across the room. That was the first year. The second year I was like, okay, this could work. What if I also put in recharge time? So recharge time is when I have one-to-one really deep conversations. I don't do really well in those big opening party, big closing party, big meetups. So that year I decided not to sign up for any meetups because those are, those tickle my, my fears. Um, and instead between each break, I scheduled in trainer one-to-one sessions so that after the breaks, I was actually talking to people, what was your favorite thing you learned? What was your aha moment? And so every year I've developed that even further. So this year, um, if you were a part of a science people team, you actually got two schedules. You got a WDS schedule and you got a science people Vanessa Van Edwards schedule. And I planned in meeting times, places, locations. We even, I even contacted the, the head of the conference, Jed, who's in charge of logistics and asked if we could have a roped off section for our trainers. In all those ways, I was able to let my ambiversion fly as opposed to flipping into really bad awkwardness. But those were all very, very purposeful. So on the outside, it seemed like I could just walk around and know everyone. No way. It was all planned. It's all planned. And we'll come back to the all planned slash swan effect here in just a minute. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, if you're somewhere on this ambiversion scale, and a lot of us are actually, right, um, based upon just the data, the other thing is like maybe you don't have a squad of 20 people, right, that, that you can yeah. do this with, right, that show up. And maybe that's not there. But, I mean, I was talking to one of my teammates, and we did a quick after-action review of the um, community party that we had and just her interacting with people. And she's like, I was really nervous, and I kind of shut down and things like that. And I realized after the fact that I forgot to prime her on, like, the five go-to questions that you can have in any of those scenarios just so that you can walk up and start talking to people, right? Um, and so I kind of went through there and then it was like, oh yeah, I'm talking to Vanessa in a few days. I'll make sure to pull that out too, because I think that's another one of those things. Like one of those questions that I have when, when I'm meeting people and if I don't know them or I do know them or I'm just overwhelmed, I was like, what's exciting you today? Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so they might tell you that, or what are you here to learn or what's new for you? Like those types of things, as opposed to just the more surface level, like how's the weather? How was your ride here? Sort of thing. But just ingraining the pattern of having those makes it yeah. so that when you walk in, you don't do that freeze thing where it's like, oh, freeze. And then it's like you either, if you're somewhere on the socially awkward scale, you might freeze for like a good three to five seconds before you realize that you're frozen, <laughs> right? But I think, right, right um, in some place, except for the extreme extroverts, I think we all sort of freeze up, right? Like, oh, crap, this is a lot of people I don't know. <laughs> what am I going mm-hmm. to do, Right. And, and preparation is a really good point. So um, a lot of the times when you're nervous about an event or you're even thinking about it, let's even say you're an extrovert, you're not nervous. The preparation is often like, well, we'll see what happens, right? Like it's like, it's so open-ended. I think that having, adding structure to your conversations, to your interactions and to your evening, even if it's just for you is extremely helpful. So what I think about is like, okay, let's take the opening party, for example, or even a networking event, just a big, big networking event. 
there's no structure to that, right? You're like, I'm going to show up and hopefully network. That's no structure. I would much rather say, okay, here's a structure for the event. I'm going to get there and that's my warm up. I'm going to kind of just survey the land. I'm going to get in. I want to grab something to eat. So I make sure that, you know, I'm not starving. I'm going to grab a drink. I'm going to run to the bathroom to make sure it's all good. I'm going to say hello to the host. That's one person I know that I know, right? I'm going to say hello to the host. And I'm going to ask the host if that host, she knows anyone that I should meet. That's my warm up time. The middle of the night, I'm going to see if the host knows anyone. And then I'm going to try to approach three different people. And I'm actually going to do this, I think, around the food. I'm going to grab a plate of food and I'm going to try to sit with three different people, right? And the end of the night, I'm going to make sure if there was anyone that caught my eye or anyone who I maybe thought I had met before that I make sure I go say goodbye to them. That's a structure that I put in place for myself that gives me purpose and uh, comfort and sort of a, a foundation. You can also do the same thing for conversations. So if I think about a networking event or a party and I'm like, my goal tonight is to get oriented to this new city I'm in. Like sometimes I'll go to a new city and go to a conference. I really want to learn more about Chicago. Okay. If that's my goal, I'm going to make sure that I open up every conversation with, are you a native to Chicago or are you just visiting? Okay. That's going to be probably something like that will be the conversation. First question I use. Now I'm, I like this kind of option. Second question might be, um, what's your favorite kind of secret spot in Chicago? I'm, you know, I'm new here. I have a day tomorrow. Should I do anything special? And my last one is going to be um, any restaurant recommendations. Now, I might not stick to any of that. <laughs> I might do something totally different. But just having those that foundation, that structure really helps. So I would encourage you to think about what's your timeline structure and what's your conversation structure before well, anything. What I'll also add is there's a sort of meta question. There's a meta thing going on in the questions that we're asking here is notice that each of them actually – um, access that person's story or that person's journey. You're not walking up really looking to talk about yourself. You're asking a question that gets them talking because once they get over the, no the nervousness, most people want to talk about stuff they know in, in themselves, right? Um, well, yeah. unless it's about themselves personally, like, you know, what's, <laughs> yeah, how are you feeling right now is actually a really awkward question for a lot of people, right? Uh, because they might not be feeling like they might be nervous. They might be anxious. They don't want to report that. Um, and we're sort of conditioned to give the positive response. Like I'm doing good. I'm doing okay. And which tells you nothing. Right. And so the questions that she's asking here are ones that, that don't require a lot of personal vulnerability and courage for the person to ask or to answer, but at the same time, still keep that conversation flowing. It's actually a very good point about the personal nature. I have a funny story slash experiment. So we did for the book in preparation for the book, we decided to kind of do a couple of networking experiments. And so what we did is we partnered with a bunch of local organizations and tracked networkers as they networked. We wanted to see like what foot patterns did they make? What conversation starters did they ask? And then we did speed rounds where we had eight different conversation starters. And I, I picked these conversation starters very purposefully. They were the ones we ask all the time. What do you do? Where are you from? How are you? And then I picked ones that I had a feeling would do well, like, um, uh, working on anything exciting recently, have any personal passion projects, or uh, what was the highlight of your day? Now, we, I also put in a couple of questions, a question, question marks. And one of them, it messed up our data for the longest time. Like we, we were like getting, we're like, what is happening with this data? The question was, what's your story? 
And what was happening was, is people either gave it a five, they loved it, it was amazing, it was great, or they gave it a zero. They hated it, they never wanna ask it again, it made them super uncomfortable. And so it came out as average, but actually it was either a love or hate, a polarizing question. And so what I, why I share this is, what's your story? Is some a question that people tend to use. But if you're an extrovert, you might love it, right? Like that might feel like, wow, I get to explore it. But if you're an introvert or an ambivert in the wrong situation, you have just pushed someone, pushed them into fear. And so with questions like that, just be very, very careful about respecting the other person's need for um, uh, inhibiting, right? Like let them exhibit as they choose. Yeah, I categorically hate that question. Right. Ah, I, I, yeah. I hate because I mean, in this circumstance, I'm like, okay, so I'm being, so what's the context here? How much time do I have? What's relevant? Like, you know, am, am I supposed to have a story? Right. There's all sorts of things like yeah. that, that I just categorically hate that one. So, so go ahead and put a data mark in there that like, no, I, like, I wrote it down. Good. I wrote it down. Also, um, Charlie, you, if you, so this is for everyone, but for Charlie too, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but unless you want to be, um, which is if you know there is a question that you hate, for example, one that I hate is what got you into your line of work? Oh, I, I just, it's such a hard answer. It's not an easy thing for me to answer. It's a little bit personal, although people wouldn't realize that. And it's used a lot of networking events. If you have a question like that, or like it's, what's your story? I would recommend thinking of an answer that you are okay with, even kind of scripting it a little bit just because they are often doing that, hoping it's a gift. Now, they don't know it's not a gift, right? Like people who ask me that question, how'd you get into your line of work? They're doing it because they think it will be a good conversation starter. They just don't know that personally it's too personal for me. Same with what's your story. So if you can think of kind of an okay 30 second answer that you can give until you can move on to the next one. Otherwise you are going to be caught like a deer in the headlights. Like- yeah. Well, well, I mean, it's a long story. I don't know if I can get into it. Uh, well, that's such a silly question. Oh, that's like the worst place to go. So think of your bandit answer, Charlie. You'll have to think of your bandit answer, and I'll ask you in a few weeks when I see you. <laughs> okay. Um, do that. I actually do have I, – I don't have it queued up because I haven't done the prepping for networking, prepared to ask – you know, prepared to answer that story yeah. sort of cue. Um, but I do have one. But just inside, I'm like, oh, I hate this question. But I'm going to answer it nonetheless and not be um, not be a jerk about it, right? Um, but it's, it's very much the quick answer deflect into something um, – mm-hmm. Something different than that, but yeah. Um, so um, thanks, thanks for that too. So here's the pro tip. So it's like like what Vanessa just mentioned. If you have that um, question that you know just you hate being asked, um, prep for it. Um, one thing that I do with my clients before a conference, um, especially if we're all going to the same conference, is I'll tell them in advance. Um, I want to prep just a quick story about what you do. So when someone asks you what you do, you have a concise elevator spit, elevator pitch, you know, whatever you want to call that type of thing. So you don't do that stumbling, mumbling thing. And then I say, okay, so we're going to prep that. And then I'm randomly going to ask you this multiple times this weekend or on this particular conversation. So we'll be deep in the middle of a conversation. You'll be explaining something and I'll be like, so what do you do? And they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. Because it trains them for that environment to where like, you're wanting to take a refresh break and you go to the bathroom and then you're sitting there washing your hands and then the person starts talking to you and they're like, what do you do? And you're like, I'm trying to wash my hands. Like, no. Right. 
That's how it's mm-hmm. always going to happen, right? So um, what's coming up for me is people listening to us are, are learning very quickly how um, methodical we are about these types of yeah. things. And it's a matter of you know method and training and practice and rehearsal more so than it's like we just walk in a room and feel like we own this space, right? And things like that. And you actually see that from a lot of people. So it's not just Vanessa and I. It's just Vanessa and I are the ones really being clear about this meta stuff that happens. So the challenge that we have, though, Vanessa, is while we're talking about all the stuff that goes on, most people don't see that going on when we're actually at the event or when we're giving the speech or when we're on the podcast. They don't see it, right? And right. One of the things that I really loved about the speech that you gave at WDS is you talked about, um, I think you called it the swan effect, right? Where Mm -hmm. we see the swan on the water and it's beautiful. It's graceful. It's elegant. And it just seems like it's on top of its own world, right? And that's, it's easy, easy, smooth, graceful, all those different types of things. But when you look under the water, right? You see a bunch of flippers, you see, you know, all the muck, you see everything. And I love so much that you brought that up and that you were willing to share that story. And so, um, unfortunately, I did not go through and redo all the stats, right, that you showed us so that we can see the context for that. Um, So bad preparation on my part when it comes to that. Um, But... You know, I really wanted to come back to say I appreciate the story on multiple levels. One is because it told the truth of the situation. But also knowing you, I realize how terrifying that was for you, mm-hmm. right, to, to yeah. lift up the yeah. kimono. Um, yeah. So of all the things you could have talked about, um, <laughs> of all the things that would have been much more comfortable to give people to look at, um, you went that route. And so I'm really curious, Why? I sat at WDS in the audience four years earlier, and I was very inspired. Like the, the speakers that year were incredible, um, but but um, a big part of me was sitting in the audience. I don't know if it was the lineup that year or what. Was thinking, I'm so amazed, but what's wrong with me? And I had this whole thing of I had been in business at that point for almost six years, so it was I was not a young entrepreneur. And thinking, why haven't I figured this out? Like why they have it all figured out. They have these paths. They, they got product market fit. They, they have the perfect niche. I had such niche envy. They had the perfect lead magnets and the perfect funnels, right? Like all those buzzwords, all the things that I had been trying to figure out in my business, it seems like they had all figured out and they had almost figured it out on the first try. It seemed like that. Now, a few days after that, I was going into like everyone's bios, right? Like I was like going on their website, signing up their newsletters, digging into their LinkedIn profiles. And I realized actually a lot of those speakers had quite a mucky history. And part of the swan effect is that muck and that murk, right? Like below the water, it's real cloudy. You can't really see it that well. And I was like, wow, what? this person pivoted three times. What? This person had a totally different business a year ago. And they didn't talk about any of that. Now, that's fine, right? Like they, they had other missions. They only had 30 minutes on stage and not going to do their whole life story. But I made a promise to myself, uh, two promises, that one, I would do everything I could to earn my way onto that stage. When I was really honest with myself, I was like, I don't deserve it yet. 
I don't deserve to be on that stage yet. I haven't figured, I don't have something to teach yet. So I was like, I got to earn my way up there, help enough people, do enough good work that I can actually deserve that spot. And second, if I get up there, I am not going to pretend that it all happened in a year. I am going to talk about the murk and the muck and the chaos. So that was actually a promise I made to myself that I was going to keep. And so I will tell you, when I was sitting down to write this talk, I didn't really want to do it. (laughs) I did not really want to do it. And I was like, oh, like, what if it's just one slide? You know, what if I just kind of mention it? And I really got real with myself. And I was like, no, look, if I was really going to share this story with me four years ago, what would I have wanted to see and know? And so I exposed, and I'm happy to share now all the numbers, like the real, the real charts and graphs and numbers and stories. And I think it really, a lot of people afterwards, I've been getting emails and coming up to me saying, I'm a year into my business. And I was saying to myself, oh my God, I'm so behind. And seeing your work and being like, wow, she's been doing this for 11 years made me realize I'm okay. Like I'm on the path. And like, I was like, wow, I made people feel okay. That's all I wanted. Just okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you're absolutely right. Um, I get in trouble from in certain quarters, I think get in trouble. It irritates some people when I tell <laughs> new entrepreneurs or would be entrepreneurs. It's like, it takes you 18 to 24 months before you have any idea what you're doing. Yes. You get, people that, get irritated. Well, not them. The, the people feel better, but sometimes the people selling the instant success sort oh. of thing, they're like kind of hurting the effort here. And I'm like, I'm kind of telling the truth here. Like, you know, it yeah. takes most people a long time. To get yeah. to that point. And unfortunately, because, um, you know, a lot of different forces we won't get into, there's this idea that like you started, you know, there's this one story, this one pivotal moment that created this sort of Ted worthy story. And then yeah. you blew up. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. I actually, I actually like, um, that that's true. There's sort of this idea that like, yeah, there was a, a breaking point or, um, a flip, I think that there, the more valuable question there is what were your inflection points? Mm-hmm. Like when people ask that of me, I can tell them, yes, I know exactly what my inflection points were that flipped me from a hundred people to a thousand people, a thousand people to 10,000 people. You know what I mean? I can tell you those, but it really, it's very rarely a single moment, I think. Yeah, well, there are turning points, and we're going to talk about a couple of your turning points here in a moment and how you rallied, right? But I, I think just understanding, so anyone listening, right, if you've been on the journey long enough, you already know what we're saying, that it takes um, a lot of what looks suspiciously like hard work with um, questionable return in the early days, <laughs> right, before things start to working, right? And overnight successes are rare, very, very rare. Um, and even where they are more abundant, don't use them as a model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it happens to you, great. Then you could be one of them. But if you, that's your expectation, then you're, it can lead for a long road of letdown and preventing you from doing the work. And so that's one of the things with, that I loved about what you said about that is went along the lines of, and you're going to be able, because you just recently get it, and it's probably still in your long-term memory, right? Um, you know, if you want to get, with, like, I want to be like you, right? Yeah. Um, yep. So remember that slide, can you give it to me so I don't screw it, butcher it completely? Yeah. How can I do what you do? That, that some form of that question. How can I have a blog like you have? How can I have a YouTube channel like you have? How can I have a book like you have? Yep. Um, I get that some form of that question a lot. And by the way, I don't even teach entrepreneurs, right? Like I teach people skills. So it's amazing. People still ask me about those business questions. 
the answer that I really, really want to give is write over 3,000 blog posts, film over 400 videos, write four books, three of them which failed, um, you know, spend 11 years hustling. That's the answer I really want to give. Now, it's not the same for everyone, but it's definitely not, oh, just do a blank. It's definitely not that answer. And anyone who gives you that answer is not telling you the truth. Yeah, or they had such um, pre-existing advantages that it made it easy. So for instance, if someone tells you that and you figure out later, like, wait a second, they had 500K in a trust fund and they could spend three years just focusing on one thing um, before it had to earn, that's a pre-existing advantage that a lot of people do not have, right? And so um, I think when we start telling the story about the Merck and we start telling the story of pre-existing advantages and start doing that, yes, it makes the marketing story not shine as bright. But I think it makes the actual strategy and process for getting there shine a lot brighter. And that's what, at the end, makes the difference. You mentioned totally. Yeah. You mentioned your books. And so I'm I'm glad you went there because that was one of those turning points. And I had, you know, in all of our conversations over dinner and things like that, I had completely forgotten about the three books prior to Captivate, right? And so um, part of, you know, as, as, as the book was coming out and as you were working through it, I was super excited for you to, to pull it all together. But in some of our conversations, I forgot, oh, this is not her first run. Um, mm-hmm. And, you, you know, when you write, so for everyone listening here, like you think your first book is the hardest. Um, it's hard on its own. The second book, mm-hmm. when it's your sophomore book, can be hard because it has to live up to certain expectations. You think you should know better, so on and so forth, right? Then your junior book has its own challenges because you're like, I've got two books under my belt. Can I do it again? Everywhere along the way, you're going to have some journey with your book, right? But in your case, you had some books that didn't do so well, right? Yeah, like that. that's a very nice way of putting it, didn't do so well. <laughs> um, what's interesting is, Now I think the word book, and I didn't get to get into this in the talk, the word book, there should be different words for these things because they're all different. The difference between my self-published, self-promoted book, that should be a different word and experience in itself. So I tried that first. That was self-published, self-promoted book. And that actually did decently well. Now that was in I started that book in 2003, so a long time ago. I was actually in high school at the time. I um, used my babysitting money to self-publish it, <laughs> so really, really little. And that was also like it was so new in the internet age that that book kind of went viral, but it didn't need that many people to go viral back then. So that unfortunately went well, and I say unfortunately <laughs> because that little bit of traction gave me a false sense of confidence. And it was before the internet had exploded. So success on the early web was very different than success in the mid web, right? Like in the mid 2010. So that first book went really well, self-published. Uh, the next book, I was like, okay, like let's build on that. I'm going to do another self-published book, but I'm going to actually ramp up the promotion. That one did worse, but I was like, oh, that's a fluke. You know, that, that, just, that just was not the right fit. Um, then I put out, um, I want, I was like, you know, I got to do a traditionally published book, right? Like now it's like my time. I figured out the self-publishing thing. That was what was holding me back. It was just that it was self-published. That was the reason, right? So I pitched my heart out. I 
you know, read every book there is on how to publish, you know, proposals, hundreds of them, pitch every agent ever, get an agent, okay, win number one. The agent pitches me to publishing houses, get a major publishing house to publish it, write the book, dream come true, comes out, nothing happens. Total failure. No one bought it. No one read it. We had no reviews. I mean, like just like I could have printed a handout on my home computer and dropped it in the garbage can and it had a, would, would have had a larger sound than that book coming out. The hard part about that was, is it took me by total surprise because I thought I'd had this little bit of success with the self-publishing. I thought, oh, traditional publishing will be magic. All these magical wheels will turn and they'll, you know, do all this media and PR for me and it will work. And at that point, I even had a decent size. At that point, it was around, I think, 7,000 people, which was a lot back in 2010. That was quite a, quite, it was, it was a decent size email list back then. And no one bought it. Um, that was so devastating and so confusing. And it made me doubt my entire identity. Yes, my business identity. It made me doubt everything I did professionally. But it also made me doubt my entire personal identity. Because as any creative or entrepreneur will know, everything you make has a part of you, especially anything with writing. And this book was particularly personal. Um, I had All my books have personal stories, but this one did also. And it just felt like a rejection of me, right? It felt like the rejection of this book was a failure of me as a human being, as a writer, as a woman, you know, it felt like every, all of it and all, all, everything I thought would be better wasn't. Um, and it took me five years to recover. <laughs> How'd five you get years back up? To recover. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the question. How did you get back up? Yeah. Um, one of the things I realized in the Merck, so like, you know, the, in, in the weeks and months following the book launch, when I was like having trouble getting out of bed, crying all the time, zero motivation to do anything in those really bad months. And I'm going to pause here because you still had an active business at this time, right? So this put a timestamp on this for me. Yeah, I had to have an active business or I couldn't pay the bills. So yeah, I had to. This is 2011, 2012. And so the reason I pull that up is it's not like, you know, you write the book. You know, I always think of those, and I know I watch a lot of cartoons and read too many comics, right? But I always think of that time, like the evil, you know, the, the evil one comes and then they get beat back down and then they go and they go away for like six to 10 years or six to 10 centuries. Right. And then come back and it's like, they've come back bigger, better, stronger. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, even though we might not be the evil ones, right. It's always like, you put the book out and then you get to go away in this quiet place where no one sees you and recuperate and then come back bigger, better, stronger. Nope. Yeah, doesn't yeah. happen. There is, I will say this is like, uh, I hope people aren't going to be upset when I say this, but like time doesn't heal. Like if I hadn't have actively tried to heal, which I'm going to talk about in a second, it would have just stayed there festering as a failure. Um, and there was no escape. Like I had to go out and keep earning money and keep paying the bills. And I still had clients and, you know, a fully functioning website. I still had 8,000 readers and my newsletter who didn't buy a book who I was angry at, right? Like I had 8,000 people who I've been writing for, for free for so long. And I asked them to buy this book and they didn't buy it. And I was angry. 
I was so angry at them. And they would send me questions and comments. We love your work. Could you answer these five questions for free? And I'd be like, no. Right. So yeah, I had to be out in the world. Now I did do the minimum, right? Like, I mean, at that point it was like, I just was like, I, I think I like stepped off of a, a couple boards. I had to quit like groups I was in. I left all my masterminds. I mean, I did do that. You know, there was a lot of like, can't, can't, won't, can't. Um, but what I realized in those really murky months was why did this go wrong? Right? Like what happened? And in part of me, a really big part of me wanted to say, oh, it was everyone else, you know? bad timing. There was a hurricane that came out the day of launch and the cover didn't work. And I wanted to blame all these other people, but like really it was my fault in the sense of I wrote this book for what I thought the publisher and my readers wanted. I wrote a book for imaginary readers, not for me, not for my current readers, I wrote it based on what I thought a book should sound like. And I think that that's why my self-published book did well, did better in the beginning, because it was just for me. It was for me and for, I thought, you know, 40 people would read it. And it was for those 40 people. And it was more than that. And I think it was because I wrote it for real. Whereas when I had the traditionally published thing on there, I changed my voice and I changed my format and I changed my stories and it didn't work. So about maybe let's see four or five months after the book launch, I decided if I had, I can't stop writing. I'm, I'm just, I'm a writer at heart. I can't, I can't stop that. And I thought maybe, you know, maybe I'll do fiction, you know, maybe that will be kinder to me, which that's a joke. Fiction is never kinder. Um, but you know, I, th- I thought maybe that would be it, but I thought, no, I, I love nonfiction. It's part of my heart what could I write just for me and like the 34 people who were sticking with me who did buy the book, right? Mm -hmm. And who recognized that I was different. And that's when I came up with the pivot from what I was doing to science of people. It was still about people. It was still about relationships and communication, but it was specifically hacking human behavior, which is my favorite part. It's very real. It's all the awkwardness I was sharing earlier. And that was a big um, part of the healing process was finding things that I could still write without wanting to throw up <laughs> that still fueled something. I'm so glad you brought that up on multiple levels. So um, one thing that I've realized is, and, and Vanessa, you know this, is I've gone through several book projects over the last yeah. three to four years, right? And I was... Earlier this spring, I was like, what the hell is going on? Because typically when I want to do something, I do it. Typically, like, that's what happens. So something is out of alignment here. And so I started thinking about the process. And one of those that I realized is that um, it was the book proposal that was really messing with me. Because if you've ever written a book proposal, um, it's tricky because you're writing for multiple people at the same time. And you have so many different voices flooding through your head. Um, and fundamentally you're not writing. It doesn't feel when you're writing, it doesn't feel like you're writing for the person who's going to buy it. And so you have to explain to someone else who's going to publish a book, why someone else would want to read that book. Right. It's a very tricky meta process, man. It's hard. It's hard. Um, 
but I kept realizing that I would, you know, I was writing a book that they, and it's always weird because it's like that capital they out there. They wanted me to write, but I yeah. didn't want to write it. Right. And, yeah. and even the one that had been, that I was working on recently is the one that people told me I should write. And it's, <sighs> but at the same time, I'm like, I should have written this six years ago. Mm. Um, when it was magic. And when, you know, when, when it was what I was waking up in the morning, like gripping and tugging me at, tugging me about, I'm not there anymore with that. And I can't recreate that. And that's one of the worst ways, right. To try to write a book is to do it when it doesn't have that sense of wonder and personal grip to you. Right. And you're just writing it for other people. Yeah. Um, And it's true. Ideas can be stale. Like I, I totally get that. There was an idea that was like, whoa, six years ago. And now you're like so burnt out on it. And also in a way, like the model right now for, for a platform, we won't even say a book. I'm just going to say a platform. Here's the model that everyone feels like they have to do. Find a niche. Step number one. Step number two, start a blog, write a bunch of posts. Step number three, put everything on every social media website ever, including medium, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Okay. Step number five, step number four, do a vlog, start doing YouTube videos. Step number five, do a podcast. Step number six, get a book for your platform, right? That's, everyone feels like they have to follow that process. That's okay. And that process does work. The problem is, is if you have an idea that you feel magical about a topic you really love, I'm going to say, um, um, veganism. Okay. You really are passionate about the vegan lifestyle and, and, um, uh, protecting animals. And you just have this fire in your belly to get, to turn everyone you meet into a vegan. And so what do you do? You start a blog, you write it on social, you create a vlog, you do a podcast and you talk about it for four years straight. You get every question that's ever been asked about veganism. You are an expert on podcasts and radio shows and media hits. And finally, a publisher comes knocking at your door. We want you to be the next vegan Paula Deen, right? (laughs) And then you're like, great, this is exactly what I wanted. This is step number six. But you've been talking about veganism for so long that you are so tired of talking about it. You feel like your ideas are old. There's nothing fresh. You feel like everyone knows about it. And all of your readers almost do know about it because you've given them all your best juice. And so you're writing a book on empty. And that is exactly what happened with my traditionally published book. And I see that happen with a lot of my friends in this industry as well. So if you have a creative spark, do not waste it on a free blog yet. You might want to actually start writing earlier. Yeah. Um, whatever it takes for you to publish is what I'm going to say on that one. Right. So I am one of those person that figure out, figures out what I think by writing it and publishing it and seeing other people communicate. So me sitting down and writing a book for six months solo ain't going to happen. Right. Right. Um, right. However, like writing and publishing and, and, and getting it out there and doing podcasts about it, that's how I figure out the, what the book is and what the shape of it is. And, you know, the, we can we can go for a long top, a long talk about this, but there's there's this window to when you feel confident enough to write about it that you can make it a thing, but you are not stale on it yet. Like it's still, you know, it's still this new and fresh that's the window that you need to be in for something like this. Love it. Because if it's yes. too early, you d- it's not going to work as well for know. you. If it's too late, yeah, you, 
um, then it's going to be super hard, right? So there's that window, and it's precious. And that's one of the reasons I, I am a big fan of Liz Gilbert's Big Magic, right? Because she talks a lot oh. about that, right? And so there's oh. that point where you it, it just it's present, it's real, it's, it's a plague in you. That's when you move on it. Um, and, you know, not going to get into a big conversation about self-publishing or traditionally published, but whatever story you have about the 18 million steps it takes before you writing a book is likely false. Right. Um, and so can I, can I say one thing? Please on do, the yeah. Difference? yeah. So, um, I don't obviously get to talk about this a lot cause I don't, I don't teach entrepreneurs, but I would say if you're thinking about self publishing or traditionally publishing, what you should know is there's actually two more categories in there. There's self publishing a book. There's traditionally publishing a book with a publisher or an advance that's not large enough for them to help you. And there's traditionally publishing a book with an advance where they're actually going to have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Those are three totally different processes. What I didn't realize was that the, the book that I traditionally published first, I had a decently small advance. Actually, it wasn't that small, but it wasn't big enough for them, where they were basically going to let me pub- market whatever I wanted, but they were not going to help. That was a completely different process than the publisher I had recently with Captivate where they had skin in the game and they helped me in ways I couldn't even imagine. So just be aware that there's a third option in there for publishing. And if you want traditional publisher, know that if you're going to get a small advance, it's purely for your ego. It is just for your name. They probably will not help at all. If you really want them to help, you have to fight for a big advance and wait until you can earn one. Absolutely. And um, David Fugate from Launch Books is, you know, our, our go-to person for this. I say our because both um, Vanessa yep. and and um, I are lucky enough to get to talk to him. But he's he's made that point several, several times is that if, if um, someone at the publishing house does not get in trouble when your book flops, um you're not likely to get the support because there are other books where they're going to get in trouble, right? Someone is going to, um, someone is going to be called to task about why, what happened with this particular book. Right. Um, exactly. You want people, you want someone to have, have their name on the line for you at the publishing house. I also didn't realize that not all publishers are created equal Mm -hmm. and there are publishing milestones that happen behind the scenes that an author is not aware of. Now, I did not know any of this the first time around. The second time around, I was very aware of it, and I made sure that I actively played a part in that game, even when authors don't usually. Like, just as an example, um, I knew, I learned that within a publishing house, especially a big publishing house, there are sales reps. Mm -hmm. So there are a rep for Barnes & Noble, there's a rep for Amazon, there's a rep for airport bookstores, there's a rep for Hudson News. Um, I was like, wait a minute. Yes, my, my editor could pitch my book to them, but I would much rather pitch my book themselves. So I flew myself to New York. I asked for a meeting with all the sales reps. We had a big lunch. I gave them a razzle-dazzle presentation on the book to get the sales reps excited. That was the best decision I ever could have made for my book. And it's not even something that people even know that they should do. But those sales reps, those 10 sales reps, I am so grateful to you if you are listening because they're the ones who sold my book, not me, really and got placement in the stores and got extra plaques and sent them ahead of time, made sure they were fully stocked. There are so many things happening behind the scenes that you don't realize. And so not all experiences are created equal. If you're, if you're listening to an expert quote unquote, talk about the publishing process. Absolutely. Um, 
If I weren't recording, I would be writing that down, but I'm remembering that because it's, it's one of those things, right? Where, um, yeah, there, there's a lot to talk about here um, in this particular place about why books don't sell in which different ways. But to pull it back, um, you know, to the main point for everyone is um, even when you take a setback, like at a certain point, you have to think about what's the thing I can't not do. So for Vanessa, she can't not write, right? Um, and so it's going to figure out what happened. And if you're my, my rule about this, and I've had to learn this the hard way multiple times, and apparently I will have to learn it again, is create the type of thing that you want to consume, right? Create the type of thing that you want to consume, yeah. which is one of the reasons there's not a product. There's currently not a productive flourishing video blog. I don't watch video blogs. I don't like them. I know people love them. Um, I just, I can't sit down and watch them. I can't be immersed in that. Um, and it's not the type of art. Yeah. This is the phrase that keeps me going. I'm so happy you don't have a video blog. I also don't have a podcast. Everyone wants me to create a podcast. I don't want to. It's not what I, where I thrive. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can can. doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And so you have to create that thing because it's a long game. No matter what you do, it's going to be a long game. And so if you're like, oh, I can do this. This totally sounds like a good idea. Three years later, when you're like, Shh, I got to record a video today. I don't want to record a video today. Like I got to do the lighting and then I got to do the thing. And then I got to, uh, I don't want to do it. Right. Whatever you don't want to do at a certain point of accomplishment will not get done. Right. Because there's other things that you actually want to do that fuel you, that fire you up, that, that get great feedback, that are going to get the attention. This other thing's always going to be at the bottom of the list. And it's going to create a story that does not serve you. That's right. Amen. So, um, so it took you five years, right? You did some decompression, mm-hmm. right? Got out of groups, so on and so forth. But tell me about that point when you're like, you've, you've done the healing, right? So it's, it sounds like, you know, done a five group, and then I wrote a book proposal, and then everything was great, right? Tell me about the process of creeping up to doing the traditional publishing thing yet again. How did you know that you were ready to, to embark upon that? Not platform ready, but emotionally ready to do that again. Um, the first thing was I met an editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, Nikki's the bomb, who Nikki's the bomb, who, um, chased me down <laughs> and didn't give me an option. So that was very helpful. Um, she snuck backstage and found me in a green room and was like, I'm going to publish your next book. And I was like, Nope, I'm good. She's like, Nope, I'm going to publish it. And I was like, no, really I'm good. And she was like, I'm not going to let you rest until I publish it. That helped having an advocate and then also having David Fugate, our agent, be like, you have to write this book. That helped having those advocates who believed in me actually helped me believe in myself. That was the first thing. The second thing is they also said to me, like, we want you to write the book that you want to write, right? We're not trying to make you write a book that we think will sell well. We actually want you to write whatever you, your heart desires to write. Um, And the last one actually does have to do with my platform in a sense, because um, I realized that not having a book was preventing me from helping people. Specifically, there are a lot of people where when they're talking about behavior change and learning, they always start with a book. That's just, that's just where they go first. They're that that's where their comfort zone, which, which is actually, I get it. I also love books and start with books. So I was getting all these emails from people who were saying, you know, where's your book? And I'd say, oh, I don't have a book. Just take my course. And they'd say, 
oh, you know, I don't, I don't do video courses or I've never, the courses aren't my thing. Are you sure you don't have a book? Well, let me know when you have one. And that was like, no, like I have something better for you. I have a video course where I can have live office hours and it's better than a book, but you know what? It's not better than a book. If my people don't learn from video courses, then it's not better. So I realized I had to create a book to be able to help the people I wanted to help. And so there was really no option for me once I had those three things in place. I had to. I, I completely get the third one because a lot of times people will ask me like, so Charlie, what if, if there are only one book in sort of productivity and self-mastery that I should read, what should I read? Um, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question, right? Um, because I can tell you five and what parts of them are great and what parts are not great and what you might need to do so on and so forth. But I would much rather say, you know what? I've got a book on that. That's the book that you should read. Right. Yeah. And I have the same. I, I have five or 10 people skills books I like, but they're not all, not one, not one. Right. And so that helps. And so we get a combination of per, like people supporting you. Right. So one, two, the permission to do what you wanted and to create what you wanted. Yeah, and three, freedom. the daily frustration of not having it um, all, all lead to it's time. It's time. Yeah. And I, and I was ready. I was actually ready when it came to writing it with those three things. I, I knew what I wanted to write. And it was like, it did flow. Like I was able to finish my book early. Um, and I think that's because it was ready. It was, it was in the back of my head. I knew it was going to come again. You know, like I knew I was going to do it again. And so it was ready to, it was ready to be out there. So the, we finished the manuscript earlier. The book came out early, um, because it was just there. It was like ready. So those in the know know that very rarely does an author reach that reach their deadline early and very rarely does yeah. the book come out early. Right. And I, yeah. I've told Vanessa this over dinner, like, Oh wow. Like that's different. Um, because yeah. normally folks are chasing authors down for various reasons that we will not go into right now. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I really appreciate that. Cause again, it's, it's easy to see the story, right. The Swan effect, right. Um, you know, you went to, you went to WDS in 2011, you knew in four years you were going to be there, you know, all those sort of stories, you know, out pops out captivate, which is a wonderful book. I've recommended it to the audience or to my audience. I'm going to recommend it in this pop in this um, episode again. Um, and it'll also be in the show notes. Everything's perfect, right? The YouTube story, the YouTube success, everything perfect. is perfect. Not so Hardly. much. Hardly. It's, 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 I would say I would replace the word perfect with purposeful, right? Like everything was very orchestrated, which takes us right back full circle to where we started this conversation, which is I believe that you can do anything. You just have to add a structure to it with conversations, with business, with marketing, with a book. And, um, that's where I've been able to find my business sweet spot as well as my personal sweet spot is how can I add my ability to have, have method? How can I add that to different areas of my life? And I hope this podcast has helped people listening, think about how they could add some method to their life too. Yeah. So, you know, it wouldn't sell as well, like the subtitle of your book. Right. But it's like, you know, a, a structured method for success with people, right? Um, because that's yeah. really what it is. It's not just like these sort of things I mean, work. Yeah. Not far off. The, the subtitle we have is the science of succeeding with people. 
it's like not that so far off. Like the science, the method, the framework, it's, that's basically the subtitle. I'm going to say we went with it and it sold really well. So well, yeah. it worked. Um, I was thinking the structured method, but science would work a lot better because science is a structured method, all of that sort of thing. But I really wanted to focus on that orchestration, the purposefulness of it, the intention behind it. And what I will say before we start wrapping up is, yes, it does take time, right? It does take time to think these things through. It does take time to test them out. It does take time to tweak and iterate and, and you know, go into it with mind, you know, with, with a really clear purpose in mind. However, the payout is much, much better, right? If you're structured, if you're purposeful, if you're doing this, right? Um, what is it? Louis Pasteur, right? Chance favors the prepared mind. Right. And so, yeah, chance favors the prepared mind. And that's really what this conversation is about, what Vanessa's book Captivate is about. So Vanessa, being the guest today, you get to make an invitation or a challenge for people based upon what we've said. So within the next week, what would you like our listeners to do? My challenge is... To pick one event or date or meeting that you've been dreading, something that you're like, Ugh, I don't want to do that. We all have those. And come up with a purpose for it. So why are you doing it? And if you can't have a purpose, say no, okay? But hopefully there is a purpose, even though you're dreading it. And think about how you can ask the right questions or set yourself up for the success to achieve that purpose and see if it changes the dread and then, and the negativity from the interaction. See if you can flip it from dread into at best neutral or at best positive. Vanessa, That's my, my dear friend, I really appreciate you joining me today. And I'd love to have you, um, sometime in the future, join us again. And we'll talk about something else. That's amazing too. Yeah. Any, if you guys have any further questions of topics you wanted us to go into more, I'm always happy to come back. I love you, Charlie. So anything for you, my friend. I appreciate it. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Vanessa. Think about one event that you have coming up. How might you take a structured approach to be intentional about it and to make sure that it nourishes you, that it's valuable for you, but it's also nourishes and valuable. It's nourishing and valuable for other people too. How might that change that ambiguous dread that you might have into maybe wonder or maybe joy or maybe adventure? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.